0: and welcome to another episode of the Mark Groups podcast. That was almost my radio voice. I don't know what that accent was supposed to be, but it actually doesn't matter what country it was supposed to be from because it was awful no matter the country. So welcome. One of the skills that continues to be honed and developed because I think it might be a never ending. If I get to the end, I'll be like, sheet, I did it. I'm a monk on a mountain sitting here and I'm floating in the clouds, and I don't need to take mushrooms or anything because I am a mushroom. If I get to that place, I'll let you know, but I'm certainly not there. But one of the greatest skills that has helped my relational life is mindfulness, is meditation. But really, I don't, you know, I'm going to get in is mindful awareness is recognizing my physical experience in conversation when I'm flooded and I can't use my voice. Even the fact that I might need space in order for my body to calm down, practices of breathing to regulate, all of these things, I have to tell you, are a continued process. I notice now, so when initially when I would get into any form of disagreement conflict, and I'm talking like it would be heightened in a relational, like romantic relationship, but that actual same somatic body experience would occur with my you know, with my family, with work, in my former job, you start to see that it's the physical response to conflict prevents us from using our brain. It really does. When you're flooded, when you go into fight, flight, freeze, fawn, you're in a state where your prefrontal cortex doesn't work. So problem solving, you can't actually listen when you're flooded. I mean, let's be honest. And I was listening actually to Harriet Lerner on Brene Brown's podcast recently on Why You Won't Apologize. It was so fantastic. If you haven't read her book, Why Won't You Apologize? You must. And you you listen to that podcast episode. It's great. I hope Brene pumps my podcast on hers. Wouldn't that be dope if she was like, I was listening to Mark Rose's podcast. Yeah, the dreams, right? Dreams. So I was listening to it and Harriet Lerner was talking about how Everyone wants to learn how to be a better speaker because everyone wants to talk, but no one wants to learn how to be a better listener generally. And she was expressing how she ran a workshop on speaking and it was sold out. It was filled like on how to communicate and create deeper intimacy. And her, she says she ran one on how to be a better listener and like the crickets, right? Like four people signed up. And I think that's interesting because we want to learn how to communicate better. But actually half of communicating is listening. And I've had to get better at that to continue to have to get better at it. Where, you know, someone says something and you're like, I'm already preparing my counter argument or looking for the flaws in their sentence of like where they're wrong or where they might be off by specific details so that I can focus on those details and not the fact that I didn't show up or I didn't follow through on my word or whatever it is. I would imagine wherever you are in the world, you probably got some hands up being like me too, and I, I or it's just me. I'm the only one who has that challenge. But that is is a fascinating thing about mindfulness is that it develops this opportunity for uh, us to really explore our body, our our physical response, our physiological response, and turn you know, in that space between reaction and response is instead of reacting, you res- you, you respond, which is really the choice of how you want to. Uh, do you want to enhance the relationship or do you not want to? Do you want to be right or do you want to stay connected? And I continue to find myself through these experiences where I'm choosing to respond that I end up in deeper levels of intimacy that I don't know what the fuck to do with because I still have a challenge receiving love i still have a challenge going to the depths uh of 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 like such exposed vulnerability and as i continue to bravely sort of walk there with the odd step backwards not the odd often a step backwards that i'm in uncharted territory and i don't know what to do when i'm in that except for reach for the tools that I learned when I wasn't in that space, you know, like what's so tender about that space of deeper intimacy and conversation that goes beyond our reactions is that usually that's in a space where we've been in deep pain and hurt, where we've been rejected or betrayed. And the, the real key to that, which is moving from adolescent to adult is that it, what matters most in that moment is that you don't betray you, that you create safety for you. That's the most important thing in that moment. And so if you can learn mindfulness, if you can learn how to be embodied, if you can learn these things, then when you're in the spaces of deeper intimacy and you're asking more questions in a place where you've never asked, you've got you. And that changes everything. So I'm so excited to have my friend Minaj on today. and. I'm ex- I met him at a retreat that I was at, and he's just a fantastic guy, just such an incredible human and up to just the most beautiful work. And he just speaks so calmly. I mean, even the way he speaks, I'm like, "Did you? are you meditating right now? Like, What's happening here? I'm just really excited for all of us to hear this this week. Much love to you. I appreciate you. I hope that wherever this finds you, it finds you with a smile and it finds you just feeling the bliss of life. Uh, amongst all the challenges, so not to dismiss those, but to still find that little sense, that little cell sense of hope. Without further ado, here is this week's podcast. Today, I have new friend slash old friend Minaj Dias. Excited to have you on here. He is a meditation teacher, a father, a writer. He's also the creator of the first meditation drop-in studio in Australia. And now you're moving over to California too, right? And that space is called Open? That's correct. That's correct, yeah. I mean, what an idea, a drop-in center where you could just kick it and do some meditation. So what is the experience like?
1: Well, I'm not sure what the experience is going to be like now (laughs) when there's no drop-in studios. But, uh, you know, I started A-Space probably about five, six years ago in Australia, and it was a community-oriented uh, space where we just allowed people to come and, and practice for 30 minutes, 40 minutes an hour, three four times a day. And it was great. It was really beautiful. It was a lot of beautiful human connection that occurred in that space. Lots of healing in that space, you know, moving across to open, like right now, all we're focusing on is developing an app because that's all we can do like mm. the rest of the world.
0: Yeah. Being, um, uh, the restraints of not being able to be in spaces, that, I mean, of course we can meditate in, you know, in our own homes, but there is something about a space, you know, a space that's sacred, a space that's like an altar, a space where you're also meeting other people that are meditating too. You know, there's, it's like, I've done tons of zoom calls. I'm sure you have, I mean, we're on a zoom call (laughs) right now, (laughs) but there's something different about being in the cellular space with people who resonate with you, who, who, um, invite you to be better who are the way you want to be or you're aspiring to grow to so you know was that what was the sort of purpose of creating that space like what was the journey that got you to there
1: yeah it's a really good point that you make about you know meditation and we can really do it anywhere at any time these days traditionally and especially in the lineage that i have been trained in and that i practiced in which is the, the buddhist lineage there is um, a philosophy called the three jewels And the three jewels are really the foundational elements to Buddhist meditation practice. And they are the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. The Buddha really represents each individual's uh, capacity to awaken or to see clearly or to find freedom and liberation. The Dharma refers to a particular type of training or, or practice or clear seeing. And then the final element is Sangha. Sangha is community. Sangha is exactly what you said, this ability to be around other practitioners, to be around people that are motivated by the same things you are, the people that are practicing the same things you are. And in those three elements, we can find liberation. So we can find it in one or we can find it in all three. And um, you know, having a space where we can go and meditate is something really profound because we know when we're in front of someone, we can communicate in ways that we can't always communicate either you know, over zoom or even over the phone. We can read body language. We can feel emotion. We can feel feeling. We can feel you know, fear. We can notice all those things, but having a space to, to explore some of these deeper concepts in life in, in a space where we're in front of another person is, is quite, quite powerful. Mm-hmm. Definitely.
0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And so, for you, because you were, I mean, I, was your journey always meditation? Like, did you still all? Where did it start? Yeah, not, where did meditation, the passion, where was the passion born? <laughs> well, you know, I was born in Sri Lanka. So being born in Sri Lanka, I was
1: born right near a temple. And, you know, Sri Lanka is, has a rich history of, of Buddhist practice and Buddhist religion. And that was around me from a very young age. You know, monks would always be at our house. We would have ceremonies. And it was in my culture. It was in my face. Wow. I never, I remember from a very young age, I was really drawn to them. And I didn't understand why. I was really drawn to the things that were wearing these really bright orange robes. I was drawn to their face. They all had shaved heads. And I found it really humorous as a child. And I remember um, my father recounts this story quite often that he actually feared that I would become a monk, that I would want to become a monk you know, when I grew up. <laughs> because every time we would be driving in the car, I would see other monks on the road and I would you know, bring my hands together in front of my heart and I would like bow to them. And my dad used to tell my mother, "Is like, look, don't let him see the monks." So they used to actually hide me, make sure I couldn't actually see out the window if there were monks walking past. So um, I think <laughs> that 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 initial inspiration was was there. But you know, I moved to Australia from a very young age, from six, and then kind of lost touch with with spirituality, with with that culture, with Buddhist practice, and then it really came back after you know by a very strange set of circumstances. And I had a, a pretty serious panic attack when I was a, uh, I was in finance at this point in my mid-20s. I had a pretty serious panic attack.
0: I did finance. And so, I know this. Right. Uh, that's enough. To even thinking about having done finance is enough to give me a little extra heartbeat. <laughs> right. you know, it's like, whoa. What? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it was, it was really at, at that point, you know, when I had that panic attack that I had to, to look for ways to get healthy because, you know, I went through a whole host of, health issues from anxiety to depression, to an eating disorder, to chronic insomnia, to addiction. And then again, a very random set of circumstances brought me to the door of a a Buddhist meditation
0: studio. Wow. So your space of healing you've created. I love that.
1: Yeah. Well, it wasn't my space. It was my teacher's space that initially brought me in. But I think what I saw in that experience was the power of community to heal someone.
0: What was it about? Yeah, and sorry, I meant like you, where you experienced your healing. Um, what was it about the experience? Like having been through all the things you'd been through up until that moment. Like, what was it that it provided that may have been like one of the first seeds or or the click, the moment that was like, oh, this is what I needed. Like, what was the thing? Mm-hmm. Or maybe there's many things.
1: Yeah, I, I think the first the first thing was my my friend actually. <laughs> At this point, I tried every drug that was out there to get well. I had done all the diets. I drank all the green juices. And a friend came to my house one day. He's like, look, come and do yoga with me. And um, I remember saying to him, I don't, I I don't know. I I actually said this. I don't own any Lululemon. I can't go. I'm sorry. (laughs) I can't (laughs) go. And he was like, uh, no, no, there's lots of of girls there. Come. And that's how he dragged me to yoga quote unquote, but it wasn't actually yoga, it was meditation. And in this particular class, the teacher who was my teacher for about eight years, repeated these words, you are not your thoughts. He repeated that you know, multiple times throughout the class. And as we were going through this practice, there was a moment that I noticed all of the thoughts that I was having and I noticed the separation between me and these particular thoughts you know, some of the thoughts were you're a loser. You're never going to get healthy again. How are you going to look after your daughter? What are you going to do for work? What are you going to have for lunch? You had chicken yesterday. You don't have chicken today. Like all of these random things were going on. And I think it was the first moment I was consciously aware that there were thoughts and there were me. And then the two things were mutually exclusive, you know, like it didn't have to be every thought was who I was. Um, So that was one, one turning point. But then the other point was just actually being in my body. I think actually feeling that for the first time I was existing from the neck down was, was quite transformational for me because maybe you know most of us these days are in a similar boat where we feel like we exist primarily from the neck up. From the moment we wake up, we're cognizing, we're analyzing, we're thinking, we're planning, we're getting anxious, and it's all very cerebral. But this, um, this experience that I had was, was very much an embodied experience and and that stayed with me for a very long time.
0: Yeah. I can definitely relate to that feeling of being cerebral of, you know, I think about, I was thinking about this this morning, actually, that in school, I was good at things like math, um, because there was an absolute answer, you know, like I knew that you couldn't, I knew that it wasn't the subjective interpretation of my teacher as to whether this was a good story I told or, you know, so I knew I could at least get to that space and no one could judge it. And I was thinking about this, the, this morning, because I, when I was young, I remember being tutored for reading comprehension and having this identity or thought about myself that I just wasn't smart. And so then Mm -hmm. I became so cerebral and became like fact, you know, like learn research, learn all this data. So no one can question because I got backup, you know? And Mm. I remember the first time I did, well, the first time I ever tried to do meditations. I mean, most of those were like three minutes, five minutes, (laughs) you know, and looking at my watch, like have I done the six minutes or the five minutes (laughs) and now be able to sit down for an hour. But to see how much that skill set has transcended to uh, when you said, being back in your body yeah i I had so i think as men too but this is true of um, so many humans but i think especially the conditioning for men is to not be in your feelings to not even have them to not even unless it's anger and it's on a sports field or not even anger but like aggression and and maybe the occasional joy but you know i think Mm. for me that journey back through meditation was like oh i have feelings i can hold them Mm. um yeah.
1: And, and, and to that point, like we're never, we're never taught how to navigate those feelings. You know, Culturally, we exist uh, in a society that tells us the primary feeling that we should all strive for is happiness. And so then, especially as men, what do we do when we feel anger? What do we do when we feel sadness, loneliness, shame? Those things uh, are never really taught to us. So, you know, we find coping strategies, you know, for you it was doubling down on, on being smart. You know, for me, it was trying to fit into a new country as an immigrant, you know, trying to look mm-hmm. a certain way and trying to adapt, um, you know, moving into drugs and alcohol, like all of those different oh, I did those two, ways yeah. that we try to
0: cope. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did those two. I didn't just do math. you know i did i did drugs i did i also found like that i would go i womanized you know i did things that were about like feeling accepted and appreciated and worthy based on the measurements we're taught but also based on Mm. just like someone liking you can be a drug you know someone being attracted to you can be a drug and i totally that journey within the meditation though was i remember hearing someone say if you don't have 10 minutes to meditate you need two hours or something And I was terrified by that because I didn't have 10 minutes. I didn't want to do it. And I there was so much truth in that, that I was so afraid to sit down. Like whenever anyone says like, I've tried to meditate and I just can't, my mind's too busy. I'm like, that's actually exactly, that's actually exactly, Uh you know, so for people listening who might not have begun that journey or might have the same feeling I had, which is fear of it. I was afraid of it. Um, and I didn't know why I was afraid of it, but it was so easy to just be like, ah, that's that's like weird woo-woo stuff.
1: Yeah. First of all, it's so normal. You know, I had the same thing. Like the first few times that I tried to meditate, I just couldn't. I thought I was losing my mind. I was just literally going crazy, noticing my the voices in my head. And that's normal. That That's how we all begin because we've never actually being taught to understand our minds and, and to learn that our minds are trainable. We can actually train our minds and hearts to be present, to be compassionate, to be engaged, to be connected. Um, and where we all begin is, is at this point of going, Holy shit, this feels insurmountable. This feels overwhelming. All I hear is voices. I'm so crazy. And then we would go into the shame of that. Like I'm not good at this meditation is not for me. Uh, I must be the only person in the world that has thoughts and so on and, and so on and so on. But the practice is is something that is revolutionary in the sense that we have assumed for a long time that we just have this brain that is with us throughout our life. You know, we are just lumped with this body, this brain, and, and we have to make do with it. But we understand obviously from from neuroscience that the brain is malleable there's ways in which it adapts and, and transforms, but but also we understand experientially, like whatever it is, we expose ourselves to repeatedly, we become better at. And that goes for yoga as an example. Like the first time I went into yoga and the teacher said downward dog, I was like,
0: what? <laughs> <Down with> what? <laughs>
1: and, and I remember looking between my legs at the people behind me and they're in this weird pose and, you know, I would come back the next day and then the teacher said downward dog again and my brain would register. It's that weird pose with your butt up in the air and your hands (laughs) like this. Over the course of a week, we we build that mental capacity to understand what a downward dog is. And meditation is, is similar. There are so many different styles of meditation practice in the world, so many traditions, so many lineages. But take, for example, mindfulness, which is probably the most popular form of meditation, it is essentially a brain training. It's a cultivation of a particular skill, similar to a downward dog. We're training our attention or our awareness to be just here in the moment. So, whether that's me and you having this conversation, and then because we're doing it over Zoom, there's this urge that I have that I notice right now to check my emails. Mark's not going to know. He can't tell. And I noticed <laughs> that. You know, I noticed that. And then in the noticing is the power where I can say, no. I want to have this conversation. I want to be present and engaged. So then I bring my awareness back. And every time I do that, we're reinforcing those synapses in the brain. We're reinforcing the, um, the neuroplasticity in the brain. And we're essentially building that muscle, you know, which, which we call the frontal cortex, the hippocampus. And you, you know, for, for those that are uninitiated, think of it as like bicep curls for your brain. Right? The more we do, the bigger it gets, and the more we are present and engage. There's a whole host of health benefits that come from that.
0: In the context of, because you were saying that they have, you have the experience of um, mindfulness, right? Being this this uh, practice that is about. I guess it it almost sounds clinical in a sense that you're developing like a clinic uh, because I guess it is now used in a clinical sense in so many ways. Like mindfulness, I remember when it wasn't even a thing, like no one was talking about it. Meditation was this sidebar weird thing that only hippies did. And then we, of course, like so many things, we start to see the health benefits of it. Oh, now it can become mainstream and it affects cortisol and disease. And so, it okay, now we can do it. We'll really adapt this because there's science to prove that. And you really see this. um, Sorry, so to get back to my thought was in the mindfulness. So mindfulness, I sort of felt like it, it feels like that's a branch of meditation. In your experience, what is sort of the next level or benefit? Because when you talked about the three seeds, is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. The that three, the the jewels,
0: the three jewels, jewels. jewels. Yeah, um, and the first one being the ability to awaken.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Second one being uh, the set of practices or a way of seeing, and, and the, the third, third one is uh, the community. Yeah.
0: So if if mindfulness is meditation as a practice then what's the ne- like what is another avenue or another level beyond practice that like all of a sudden you know maybe we see ourselves levitating or <laughs> i don't know but i'm interested <laughs> of like what's the next path or or a deeper dive into meditation
1: yeah that's such a great question and i think it it stems from popular culture understands meditation primarily again cerebrally. you know so when you mentioned the the health benefits and all of a sudden yeah. we're like ooh this seems interesting. I could do um, this, but the practice, I can do this, right? Because, you know, science tells me that it's good for me, but the, this particular style of meditation that we know is mindfulness these days, has been, it's a, it's a clinical version, for lack of a better word, but its roots are in, you know, Buddhist meditation practice, in particular, a practice called Sati, which came out of a, a discourse that the Buddha gave called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the, the foundations of, of mindfulness practice. And, you know, 2,500 years ago, the, the first foundation of mindfulness spoke about the body as being a point or a portal for us to experience this sense of Connection to the present moment. So, if you think about it as the entry point, which many of us access today, is being mindfulness as present moment awareness with a non-judgmental attitude. What that really does, uh, from a Buddhist perspective, is calm our minds down. It enables us to just begin to to see to reduce the fluctuations of our mind, to be able to be less reactive, to be able to be well rested. Maybe even to cultivate more compassion for ourselves and, and others, but then the next level of that is almost this practice, what we call vipassana. And, and these two can coexist together, but vipassana practice is the clear seeing, which is really like the the fruit of what happens when our minds are calm. We can then see the world clearly. So, in order to understand this a bit more clearly, we can think about a pond. When the pond is dirty, when the pond has lots of ripples, we can't see what's at the bottom of the pond. All we see are the waves. But when the pond is calm, we can see right down to the bottom. We can see the fish. We can see the rocks. And our minds are very similar. It's hard for us to see the nature of our mind when we're constantly stressed, when we're constantly anxious, when we're constantly planning, analyzing, worrying. But when we can slow all that thinking down, when we can slow the reactivity down, We can begin to check in and we can see, ah, hang on, I'm clinging to my ex-girlfriend that I broke up with six years ago. I can't get over her. Why is that? And you can see it's very clearly I'm attached to her in these ways. Or you can begin to see when it comes to, you know, the racial biases we're seeing right now. When our minds are calm, we can see that we're judging someone based on the color of their skin or their accent or their background but it's hard for us to see that when we're constantly in a space of reactivity when we're mm-hmm. constantly inundating our brains with information, and we're not allowing ourselves to to slow those ripples down and then to perceive things just as they are
0: I think about the the concept of reactivity and being able to uh, the mindfulness aspect or the meditation's benefit in communication in relationship that if you're able to observe the feeling that you have going on or the thought that you have going on and no longer it drive the behavior, you know, that you're able to observe your anger or observe your defensiveness, but not allow it to speak for you. Then, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you're in, you end up in a totally different place. You end up, I mean, you end up in a state of compassion for self, but also a state of compassion and intimacy with your whoever you're in communication with.
1: But, but also there's a personal power there because we have choice, you know, and, and I think about this often when I'm about to get into an argument with my girlfriend. I know I'm about to get into an argument. Like I, I, can, I can tell where this is going because I feel like my body starts to give me the signs, like blood rushing to my heart, my palms getting sweaty, like anger arising. And at that moment, if I recognize that, I'm, I already give myself a choice. I can make the decision to engage and dive into this argument, which I know is not going to end well. I'll probably end up sleeping on the couch or I'll probably end up sleeping <laughs> in the next room.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, or I can I can notice this and I can diffuse a situation and I can respond more wisely instead of responding reactivity uh, reactively. And we call this, you know, response versus reaction. How can I use my awareness to enable me to respond to life as opposed to react to life.
0: Well, and when we're, you know, that sense of community, when you're around other people who already live that way, there's an invitation and in communication with them because that's how they respond to us. So we might, for the first time in our lives, experience a moment of compassion and space uh, in a what we feel like is a conflict. And the other person's like, tell me more about that. <laughs> and like, oh, I'm really curious about your point of view. You make a really good point. And we're like, what? Right, right.
1: And when we already have those people in our life, right, they might not even be meditators, but they're naturally dropping into this uh, quality of, of mindfulness, which is, again, some, a quality that we all experience. Like you and I might be having a mindful experience right now because we're actively engaged in the present moment. We're not judging what is occurring right now. We're not trying to push it away. We're not trying to invite it in. But we're having this very authentic conversation. And similar to deep and meaningful conversations, you know, I sometimes reference the honeymoon period of a relationship with a partner is bearing like a heightened state of mindfulness because at that point in time, you're so present to each other. You're so compassionate with each other. You're so connected with each other. You're very, well, you're not as judgmental to that person at that point in time. But what tends to happen after six months or a year or whatever it is, is that complacency comes in. It, It doesn't, The novelty wears off. So then we have to actively try to cultivate that quality of mindfulness because it's not the norm. You know, we're seeing this person every single day. So it's not the norm. And so similarly, it's like our life, like that space of mindfulness, something that we can cultivate in any moment, whether we're eating, drinking, running, having sex, talking, it's there for us. But we have to actively engage in that moment.
0: Why do you think it is that we have, because this seems like a, I don't want to say disease, but it seems like an ailment of the masses that that when I go to somewhere like, well, when I used to go to places in public before they closed everything. But when I remember going to like Starbucks or I see this now in like the grocery store too, that in line, no one can just stand in line. No one can just be there and then engage in a conversation with someone around them. Everyone is like going to their phone you know, and, and it seems to be that there is a very much a fear of the present moment, a very much a fear of, of just what, like, I remember as a kid not having anything to do, you know, and that being a beautiful thing to be bored. But now it feels like everyone's, uh, I don't want to say everyone, but so many people are afraid of boredom, afraid of stillness.
1: Well, part of the problem is that
0: being present
1: doesn't always mean being, is feeling good, you know? And we can think of this Mm. moment that we're in right now. If we're really present to ourselves, we might start to notice there's anxiety right now. And the way we're distracting ourselves is by diving into a new project, like writing a book or gardening or whatever it is. Doing a podcast. Uh, Doing a a podcast. All that sort of stuff, right? And then what would happen if we take all that away? Uh, and we're just left with the present moment and we're left with ourselves. is that we would have to face that. And again, we're not taught how to face that. We're not taught how to allow feelings of fear be present in our bodies. We're not taught how to let anxiety be there. What we're conditioned to believe societally is that the moment anything unpleasant arises, do everything you can, as soon as you can to not feel that way and to feel good. So drink that green juice, go on that diet, meditate, do yoga, do all these things to not feel what you're feeling. And I think that's part of what is causing us to really feel disconnected from our life and feel more connected to our phone. And part of that is obviously the, the instant dopamine hit that we get whenever we check our phone and we see like a little red notification icon there or someone has liked our photo or someone has followed us on Instagram. Like that's a very gratifying feeling to our brain. It's the same feeling that we might get, you know, during sex or food or, you know, someone that we love, you know, calls out our name. So, you know, those two things combined are really creating this perfect storm of, of disconnection in our life.
0: I never thought about the idea that maybe it's that presence doesn't always mean feeling good like that. Hmm.
1: I mean, does it, does it feel good for you when, whenever you're really present?
0: No, it doesn't, you know, And, and I never really thought about that being um, because I'm comfortable sitting in feelings now that, Mm. that there's like a beauty in being able to recognize the collective anxiety and my own from the collective and from my own, you know, and then what might, what circumstances might be going on in my life. Like I think of, you know, today I felt a little more distracted and I, I went for a walk through the forest with my dog and I was, paying attention to that I just stopped drinking caffeinated coffee. So of course that's influencing me. So to be able to, to be mindful of that and then recognize that my body's response might be due to that and maybe heightened Mm. anxiety, you know, and so it doesn't always feel good. And I, I think about this a lot that we are Socialized to believe that if you have a negative feeling, there's something wrong with you. Like we medicate Mm -hmm. negative feelings and I'm not saying medication isn't due sometimes and all that, that disclaimer's out there. But that we are taught that that if you have sadness, there's something wrong with you. If you're anxious, there's something wrong with you. When very well, your life circumstances, that's the exact emotion. I guarantee that if that's the feeling you have, your life circumstances are calling for that.
1: Like, we're, we're all anxious right now. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious and I've been meditating for, you know, almost two decades. Like, that's, that's, it's just present. It's there. And we're not always broken, you know. I think that's really what it comes down to is that we don't always need to fix ourselves. Yes, we're whole and complete and there's room for us to grow. I think that's you know, the perception that I work with in, in meditation practice is that, you know, we all have blind spots. We all have areas for development. But fundamentally, we're good people. And, um, you know, marketing wouldn't exist if that was, if we all believe that. <laughs> because marketing uh, is predicated on the belief that we we are constantly needing to be
0: fixed. Amen to that. That's exactly what it feeds upon is the desire to fit in, the desire to be enough. that And, and being able to notice for myself that, those desires exist because I'm human and I'm influenced by the things around me. But then being able to, in that breath of awareness, to choose whether I'm going to engage—is this a healthy choice to engage with? Is it not? Is it? Mm. And knowing that I'm human, I'm going to make unhealthy choices. I'm going to make mistakes. And, you know, totally,
1: totally. And and it's it's not a uh, it's not a call to action to give up on life and just become a hermit living in the forest like you are. Yeah, I agree. Like, <laughs> it's, 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 it's it's more it's more an invitation to to think that we can enjoy life we can enjoy buying clothes we can enjoy fancy dinners we can do all that but ultimately it's not going to influence who we are at a fundamental level mm-hmm. you know ultimately it's not going to give us lasting happiness that happiness can you know really only reside from from within it, it starts from within and obviously it spreads and it emanates outwards but that's really with meditation practice and especially in the the tradition that i practice in and and learn from it's really uncovering the layers that are obscuring that that realization that at our basic level we're good people
0: so in vipassana i was talking to um diego young pueblo you know the writer. yeah
1: yeah it's a good friend
0: (laughs) yeah he's such a great guy and i was asking because he does like 45 day vipassanas and stuff and i had him on the podcast too and he was talking about it and I was speaking to him a couple of weeks ago and I was saying to him that I've been feeling called to do a Vipassana. And he said something so interesting that I was like, whoa, yeah, I want that. Because he was saying that when you truly learn to sit in that space of no stimuli for, I mean, he does 45 days, I'm going to shoot for 10. And he said, you start to feel what it's like to feel your atoms that you're composed of, the blood flowing through your body. And I thought, oh my gosh, like what an awareness of self that because you have nothing Mm -hmm. else um, fulfilling your awareness or like feeling it. Because I think of like someone, a a guy that I knew in college, he was was blind. His ability to hear things, like I remember him saying, oh, um, I can hear some, is there skates being sharpened? I was like, mm. what? They were like so far down halls way, but his his attunement was so high and um, super powered in the senses that he had because he wasn't um, giving sense to his eyesight. And I think about that in the context of Vipassana, like it must wake you up to so much awareness because there's so much stimuli all the time that to literally be in 10 days and for people we don't know what it is. Maybe you can explain it, but that that space of of total awareness.
1: Yeah, I think you said you re- you made the reference of an awareness of self, and um, it's almost the the opposite. It's it's an awareness of non-self, mm. or we call it not self or anatta in, in our practice, which is we recognize that. There is this interconnection, this interbeing with all things. So this, what tends to happen with consistent practice, and you know, we don't always have these moments of realization. Maybe yoga does after his 45 days, but they come and go. But what tends to happen in these deep meditation retreats is that this idea that we have constructed of who Mark is and who Manoj is disappears. You know, we, we let go of. I am this meditation teacher, this writer, this father, this man, this name, this skin color, this body. All of that begins to dissolve, and and what's what's left is just the essence of the experience. And that's when we begin to notice that I can I can sense this bird that's over there, like I, I feel this intrinsic connection to it. That there is an interconnection there. And we are part of something much, much bigger than we can really grasp, and it's in all of us, and we're in all of it. And so, it's the dissolution of what we've created. It's a dissolution of the self that begins to give us these awarenesses and these realizations. at a At a more um, at a more superficial level, we just begin to to feel more connected, like you know, physically feel more connected. I feel more grounded into the earth. I feel more in my body and less in my head and when we can be in that space insights naturally arise you know we noticed like i said at the start how we've created these stories throughout our life and then how they're just stories they're impermanent like everything else that actually exists in this world including me including this bird including this life everything has like this natural ebb and flow and this evolution and dissolution and uh, and that's really the 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 profundity of practices like Vipassana and long meditations is really deconstructing who we think we are and to see things as they really
0: are. I've gone through that process of imagining, okay, like what is it? Imagine if my name wasn't Mark, like I was Mm -hmm. given that name. I was given the religion I was given. So if I let go of that, I'm a guy with an Instagram name, create the love and uh, I'm not my status. I'm not all these things. It is both um, destabilizing and so peaceful. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a, I've gone down this rabbit hole many times. Um, and it, Why
1: is it, um, can I ask you, why yeah, does it yeah. feel destabilizing?
0: Well, I think is the destabilizing part is the attachment to those things. It's like, who am I if I'm not? And then there's a peacefulness that sort of inserts in there, but there's like a fear of maybe the peacefulness or a fear of, of the letting go of that thing. And it's probably, well, I mean, based
1: on what you're saying, what it sounds to me is that there is the fear of not knowing. You know, it's who, who am I if I'm not Mark? Who am I if I don't have this podcast? And I, and I reckon with that all the time. Who am I if I'm not a teacher? Who am I if I haven't you know co-founded this company? would people still love me? Would people still like me? Would I have a job? Would I make money? How would I live? Would I live? What would I eat? <laughs> All of these things. And and we don't know. So because we don't know, we tend to cling. We we reach out. We hold on to things that give us safety in this world. But the reality is life is inherently unstable. Like we've seen this in 2020 more than any other year. Like <laughs> yeah, so that I can that. remember how, <laughs> in the space of a week or a month, our life can get turned upside down. And so many of us try to cling to our jobs, our partners, our way of life, and all that really causes is more suffering. We get anxious, we get depressed, or we just get ourselves worked up because life isn't the way we want it to be. Part of the practice of, of meditation is to see if we can rest in what we call groundlessness, um, and i think it's pema chodron a really famous buddhist teacher and author talks about meditation being this experience where it feels like we're falling through the sky and we're scared until we realize there's no ground and that really <laughs> speaks to wow that really speaks to me at, at such a, a deep level because that that's really the practice of meditation is just getting comfortable with the ever-changing, not-knowing world that we exist in and cultivating the capacity internally to be able to respond to that.
0: That's such a beautiful metaphor of like, I'm falling, but there's no ground. Well, then there's nothing to fear. Mm-hmm. I remember listening to this spiritual teacher, Ganga Ji, and she said, mm-hmm. uh, I was saying to her like, you know, my mind goes in these loops of trying to understand like humanity and why I'm here and that we're a planet in the middle of a solar system. And, you know, all those in the X, like you realize that you're about a speck of dust in a massive, but significant, but insignificant, you know, like the big, the pale blue dot. And she said to me, the mind can never understand your mind will never be able to understand because it's a product of what it's been created in. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh shit that's it. Like I'm trying to use a tool that is a pro- that is part of it, you know, yeah. instead of that attachment to needing to know. And yeah. I don't know if in, Yeah. sorry, go on.
1: Well, I was just going to say in relation to that. And also what you previously said is that from the, the moment you were born, you were given an identity. You were told you are this person, you are Mark, you are part of this family. And then, you are this particular social class, this particular race, all of these things you are conditioned into. It's not like you chose that. So, you know, obviously it's a very scary thing to to begin to let go of that. What would that look like? Who knows?
0: I remember listening to Ram Dass saying that, uh, you know, at one point you realize that it's in this incarnation, you are the children of these parents, but you don't know if, I think you said, if your dad, you might've, your dad might've been your dog in your past life. You don't know. And I thought that sort of provides a bit of playfulness when you start to think about um, the family you're born into, especially if there's pain in that family, that all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is my karma. This is what I've been invited to learn in this lifetime that you wake up and you're a soul in a body. And he, mm. I remember in his explaining of that, he said, "And at first, you're angry at all the things it took you to wake up." Mm. And,
1: and- I love that quote. That's a really beautiful quote, and and it's true. You know, like I I, I tend to hazard against saying that everything we're going through is karma, because then it, you know it almost says that it's our fault that we're yeah. you know, experiencing violence and, and things like that. But, you know, my understanding of it based on, you know, my teacher Miles Neal is that karma is essentially not necessarily what happens to us, but how we respond to what happens to mm. us. You know, it's um, it's the the psychological conditioning that means that, you know, for example, me, when as soon as we went into lockdown, scarcity actually came in and I was just freaking the fuck out. I was like, oh, shit, like I need to, how am I going to live? Huh? And I went into Productivity and I just tried to do all these things, and then obviously I burnt out. And so, one symptom of that is obviously having a mother who was very um, motivated by scarcity, but also could be karmic. You know, it's probably karmic that I had to have that experience to recognize that, hey, I'm now having this experience of scarcity and I can choose something differently. Um, you know, relationships, I think about that a lot when it comes to the relationships that I've experienced in my life. Um, it's 100% been my, my karmic mindset to cling, to, to push away, to run away from love. That's been conditioning. And karma is really understanding this is what we've inherited and we have a choice. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change all of a sudden like that. Karma is not necess- how we you know, might understand of it in popular culture is you did this, therefore you, you, you deserve this. It's a little bit more complex than that, but at a fundamental level, it's, it's our mental framework um, and our mental conditioning as to how we respond to a,
0: an event. I love that uh, definition of it or that explanation of it, because then it, it, as you said, it's, it's not like it's your fault that these things are happening, but the karma mm-hmm. part is the choice the, of how to be, how to respond. And mm-hmm. I think of the experience very cerebral. I think about these things. The I feel like the experience of the meditation that that separates the identity gets. So there's uh, you said the the dissolution of self, the not self. Mm. Would you say mm. yeah. Then in that experience is uh you know the connection to everything, and I feel like when you experience that level of connectivity to everything, that you are part of everything, that the tree is you, and the, you know that the ant is, is a, a, a being, an energy, a thing. Mm. You all of a sudden can't then inflict pain on these things, you know, and I, it feels as though we as a collective have forgotten that we are part of the earth. You know, there's sort of like an arrogance to consciousness, consciousness, mm-hmm. is maybe not the right word. There's an arrogance to ego that's cultivated from the way of of being able to recognize that we as a species can have choice, but it's like, um, in that we make such arrogant choices. We, mm. you know, we like will choose profit and get more stuff, get more stuff over human lives, over, uh, mm forests and animals and it feels as though that the more and maybe that's part of the fear of going into the meditation path is like if i all of a sudden go into my own empathic heart space then i will no longer be able to operate out of integrity because Mm -hmm. i will be feeling the impact Mm -hmm. of that Mm.
1: it's it's well it's true and people always find a way right and i and i think about that now in terms of what's happening with the black lives matter movement is that, you know, for me as someone that has practiced meditation deeply, part of what meditation really creates is compassion. It's probably the foundation to to my practice is awareness and compassion. So the more aware I become and the more compassion that naturally arises for myself, the more difficult it is for me to see injustice happen in the world. That's naturally arising. You know, it's not something that I have to force like, if anyone is in pain, like I go into pain. So there's a way in which sometimes we can use spiritual practice to not feel those things. And that's called spiritual bypassing Mm -hmm. in which we talk about love and light. And I'm going to do yoga because life feels too hard right now. And that's great. Like it gives you some therapeutic benefit, but really the liberation, which all of these spiritual practices are trying to cultivate, which is like, freedom from the egoic mind and this clear seeing really comes by going into the fire of this experience, right? It's actually rising up like a Phoenix after going into the fire of our own self-discovery. And that takes work that will take giving up things that are not harmful. Like I love, I love to drink, but I don't drink anymore. (laughs) Like there are times (laughs) like in quarantine, I'm like, I want to drink a beer right now, but I know, what happens when I, when I drink and I know it's harmful for me and for my psyche. And I use that as an example, not to say that drinking is bad, but for me, I know my mind gets cloudy and and blah, blah, blah. So when it comes to, when it comes to what, what you were saying is that we cause harm to our environment, we cause harm to each other. It takes work. It's like, we have to choose. Like you talk about love a lot in this podcast. It's like, you know, sometimes love is a choice. You know, we have to choose to love this person and liberation and compassion is also a choice because it's very easy to, for me to, to get on, to go to a yoga class and to see someone being harmed and just to be like, oh, that's a shame for her. I'm gonna just going to keep doing my thing over here. Like that's great and it's good for your own well-being. But when there's someone suffering there, you're not really free in that moment unless that person is also free. We can't ever really be happy whilst there is suffering around us, and we know that in relationship with someone that we love, right? We can be totally happy, and this person is suffering. And by a byproduct of her suffering is that there's already an element of suffering for us because mm-hmm. we're concerned, we're worried, we're you know anxious about them. So it, it's it's similar. Like it, meditation practice really informs. Well, has for me, it's informed how I show up in the world not just for myself but but for others.
0: I think of one of my favorite quotes from The Gottmans is about when they talk about relationship masters like the people who really have long-term beautiful deep connected relationships and they say the secret is that they don't leave each other in pain. They repair, mm-hmm. they turn towards, they and I, I that's one of my favorite quotes because to me it's such a level of like I could formally want to punish someone by leaving them in their suffering. Like, oh, you hurt me. You're going to hurt for a while. I'm going to not allow you access to me. Um, mm-hmm. And knowing that, that, that root of like being able to see that someone else is suffering is our own, that you're right. You mm-hmm. can't then observe any experience and not, and not intervene or not stand up or not say something. And I feel like the, mm-hmm. the current, landscape of what's going on with black lives matter has really I hope and I think it feels as though people are really starting to see the systems at play that that are structured in a way to let certain people win um, with my skin color and mine um, and being you know uh, a straight white male I mean being able to just sit in that and be like I don't want other people to suffer and I certainly don't win in a system that Benefit that I benefit Mm. through that. Mm. So I love the correlation to the mindfulness and that 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 presence of self is really comes with a responsibility. You know, it comes with a responsibility.
1: And and you touched on relationship as well. And I think, you know, this is where the intersection of, you know, spiritual practice and and modern day psychology really intersect is that one way to look at what I just said is that we're all about it's all about looking after everyone else and we become, you know, this version in our head of mother teresa who's always caring and pathetic to everyone else but when it comes to relationship you know for me anyway this real compassion i'm speaking about comes with boundaries is that we care for we care for someone to the extent that they also can care for themselves but at the end, end of the day like i also need to protect my well-being as well so it's it's an intersection of Yes, we should be altruistic. We should care for others. We should call out systems of oppression that are harming others, and that can coexist whilst we look after each other and we look after ourselves.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a um, important subject that I speak about all the time. That ability to like separate compassion from tolerance. Like you can be compassionate for someone's mm-hmm. situation, but know that you you don't need to tolerate it if it's not healthy. Absolutely. If it's harming. So, all right, well, what is your app that you're building? Just so I.
1: Yeah, so um, Open is building a, a platform, a, a digital platform. Um, we're kind of just new to the space at the moment, just feeling it out, but at the moment we have uh, free classes uh, that really work on this modality of, of mixed methodology. So, breathwork and meditation, uh, yoga and breathwork, sound and meditation. And really bringing these ancient practices and, and delivering them to people in,
0: in new ways so where uh, where would people find more because I <laughs> feel like I heard your voice before I ever met you, and I was like, "Hey, <laughs> don't you have a meditation <laughs> on relationships of course you're right like, uh, right uh, and so I think it's um you know I'm sure for people listening to your voice, they're like, "Oh, I think my nervous system just calmed down and I think I just meditated during this podcast. So where do people find more of you and, and all of that stuff? Yeah. So, um, you know, you
1: can find me on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, it's Manoj Dias, M-A-N-O-J-D-I-A-S. Uh, Open is a platform that I'm um, working on at the moment, which is really exciting. And the website is o-p-e-n.com. Uh, and then, yeah, we have a bunch of, of classes throughout the day at the moment that, that are free and it's a really, really cool platform to not just practice, but also connect with, with other meditators.
0: It sounds really awesome. And I can speak, uh, for myself that the breath work and meditation together. Oh my gosh. Like breath work is like a straight shot to the soul. It's pretty incredible Mm -hmm. what it does in terms of the Mm -hmm. body just being so present. There's something about having, you know, breathing in a certain way that you can't think while you're doing it. Cause you have to think about how you're breathing.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very new practice for me, but, uh, but actually learning the physiological benefits of it is, has been really mind blowing for me and, you know meditation is is part of a toolkit of our wellness it's not the the panacea that's going to save our life it's part of it Um, you know combined with healthy relationships combined with a good diet combined with exercise um, all of these things can really uh, really enhance our life
0: agreed well thank you so much for being on today i appreciate your time and for coming on across the ocean in the morning so thanks for being pleasure